Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Thanks for tuning in to Harvesting Happiness today for a healthy serving of consciously prepared brain food. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, your host. For more than 13 years, I've been handcrafting these sound ideas for better well-being. Each week, I love spotlighting diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. I invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the architecture of honesty, fact, fiction, and the technology trap. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Lewandowski. He is a cognitive scientist at the University of Bristol, whose main interest is in the pressure points between the architecture of online information technologies and human cognition and the consequences for democracy that arise from those pressure points. A recipient of numerous awards and honors, his research examines the consequences of the clash between social media architectures and human cognition. Professor Lewandowski has published hundreds of scholarly articles, chapters, and books. His research regularly appears in journals such as Nature Human Behavior, Nature Communications, and Psychological Review. And Stephen is one of the members of CIRCE, the Cognitive Immunity Research Center Project, and also the Mental Immunity Project. Stephen, thanks for joining me today. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is a juicy topic, and many of us, which is why we've all come together to really work so hard on this series are uh, concerned about the coming years, the elections that are coming up around the world, and the tensions that are causing a rift in our society. Let's talk a little bit about what happens, what, how technology influences democracy. Well, that's a big question, and there's uh, you know lots of aspects to the answer. But let me give you just one example, and that example is based on the fact that if you go on Facebook, you will find a community that shares your belief, however absurd it is. Why? Well, because there are 5 billion people or whatever on Facebook. And so even a tiny minority can hook up. Let me illustrate it with an example. 200 years ago, if you had been the proverbial village idiot in Gloucestershire here in the UK, and you thought the earth was flat, well, no one would have listened to you. Everybody would have dismissed you. You would have never found anybody else in your life who shared that belief. And hence, you probably weren't articulating it very loudly. Now, today, you jump on Facebook with the same belief, and all of a sudden, 
there's a community and you can get reinforced in your false belief and you can say everybody else is wrong because my friends and I all agree that the earth is flat. And the moment you have that sort of community support and the, the false perception of a consensus, your opinion becomes entrenched and it becomes very difficult to update and it becomes very difficult for you to revise your belief. And that is a unique consequence, I would argue, of the architecture of social media. And so what it does is to connect people which is a wonderful thing. But in so doing, it is also creating communities that are impenetrable and impervious to evidence about the world. And that, I think, is a consequence we haven't quite come to terms with. I think this is interesting because it defines or describes a little bit the sort of proverbial they you know, they say, who is the they, Indeed. you know, who is the they yes. that is after us or the they that is saying it, this? It's in that bubble. <laughs> Precisely. And that, of course, is the bigger issue. Are there filter bubbles on, on social media? And I think undoubtedly the answer is yes, there are segregated communities. Uh, in part, the segregation arises from algorithms that are feeding us our information. But in part, it also arises from people's choice. You know, we like being with people who are like us. Yeah, it's great to be confirmed in your opinion. It's slightly less comfortable to be confronted with people who hold different opinions. So it's a very natural sort of selection process that we aggregate into these different communities. And talk a little bit more deeply about how it undermines the democratic process, because it, from what I hear you say, it splinters us off into all of these little fringe groups where we lose track or our eyes are no longer on the um, collective prize of a free society. Exactly. And well, that's precisely the problem. Democracy to function relies on a common knowledge base. We have to, as citizens, we have to agree on certain things before we can even disagree, right? I mean, we may disagree about the policies regarding, you know, unemployment or health insurance or whatever, but we can only have that disagreement if we at least acknowledge there is such thing as employment and there is such thing as <laughs> health insurance. But if you have people who say, oh, no, 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 the economy is a hoax or you know, health insurance doesn't exist. Um, and, and let me tell you, you know, you may think that's absurd, but these people do exist. Um, the moment you come to that sort of lack of sharing of just, you know, fundamental facts about life, that is when democracy becomes problematic. And it becomes even more problematic when basic things like elections are being disputed on the basis of, of disinformation and inaccurate information and lies. That's when it becomes seriously uh, problematic. Well, it's when the lies become alternative facts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to quote precisely. Someone who shall remain nameless. <laughs> oh, yes, we can. <laughs> we can pretend to let them remain nameless. But of course, we all know who it was and who we're talking about. But you're absolutely right. That is precisely the, the issue. And so one of the questions that my research has tried to address is, well, how can this be the case? How can alternative facts become, you know, how can they gain currency? And 
I think one of the answers is that if we look at the the you know the architecture of truth or the architecture of honesty, then it turns out that at a very deep level, there are different components of honesty. So, for example, if I honestly tell you the Earth is round, then you know I told you something that's true. Hence, I'm honest. But here's the thing. If I honestly tell you how I feel about the world, and I sincerely express to you my belief that the earth is flat, well, I'm also kind of honest in a sense, because I didn't lie to you. I told you what my feelings are, you know. And so all of a sudden, you know, we have to recognize that there are these two components of accuracy, of honesty, and of truth. One based on evidence and the other one based on authentic expression of belief. Right. So, and that is, I think, where the problem lies. And and we have a paper actually coming out on Monday where we show that these two components exist in the political speech among American politicians. And we call one aspect belief speaking and the other aspect fact speaking. And they're distinct aspects of honesty. And it turns out that, among Republicans at least, the more they engage in belief speaking, the more likely they are to accompany that belief speaking with inaccurate information. This is very interesting because it gets into the psychology of belief, right? And when we talk about psychology in the traditional sense, not as it ties to politics, when we talk about how we are wired, right, what we think and what we feel are disconnected from fact often. They're, they're, they're not the same thing. Indeed, they can be. They can be, you know. And, and if you look at the data, one of the fascinating things uh, about recent American politics is that uh, while Donald Trump was president, according to fact checkers, he made something like 30,000 false or misleading claims. Right. Now, that's kind of like a staggering number, if you think about it, and unprecedented in the history of liberal democracies. By the same token, at the same time, three quarters of Republicans considered him to be honest. And that, to me, is a striking paradox. How can that be that somebody who is so inaccurate and says so many things that are clearly false? that are just absurdly false, right? How can he be considered honest? And I think this idea that part of honesty is not about the world, but about whether the person is authentic and expressing their belief. The recognition that that is a component of honesty, I think explains why demagogues such as Donald Trump, but also, you know, here in the UK, we've had another dude with a hairdo <laughs> that wasn't, you know, they all have hairdos. I don't yep. know what it is about it, but they, you know, he had an equally estranged relationship to the truth, but yep. didn't pay a price for that. People loved him, you know, for a while. And we have the same in, you know, Brazil. We have populist leaders around the world that are lying, let's face it, but people think they're honest. And I think the key is in this sort of remapping of honesty from accuracy to sincerity. 
Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, Professor Stephen Lewandowski. We're talking about the architecture of truth, facts, fiction, and the technology trap. To learn more about Stephen's work, please go to, I'm going to spell it out because it's a tricky one, C-O-G-S-C-I-W-A.com. Once again, that's C-O-G-S-C-I-W-A.com. And you can find Stephen on Twitter at S-T-Warg. W-O-R-G. We'll be right back. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, seek support because good psychological health is vital in the achievement of a happy and satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your community and through social media. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with and follow us on most social media channels. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Stephen Lewandowski. We're talking about the architecture of honesty, fact, fiction, and the technology trap. Let's get back to it. So, Stephen, we were talking about politics around the world and the impact of belief as it is inserted into the political conversation and how that's able to win the hearts and minds of people and how dangerous it is, actually. Well, first of all, I have to say that, you know, belief is indispensable in politics and, you know, we all engage in belief speaking when we talk about politics, you know, you have your own opinions or beliefs about what might be the best medical care or the best legislation to support social media for democracy or whatever, you know, there is a lot of belief in politics and so it should be. So the problem isn't the expression of belief per se. The problem arises when expressing a belief takes precedence over the evidence showing it to be false. That, that is, I, I think, the problem. So if, if I express the belief that the earth is flat, maybe that's a silly thing to do, but nonetheless, I can do that. There are plenty of them out there. Well, <laughs> yeah, a certain number, indeed. But the problem really arises if I'm then being confronted with the evidence that without any doubt establishes the earth to be round, and I persist in my belief, and I take my belief ahead of the evidence, that is when you when you run into a problem in politics. That, I think, is when democracy is, is crumbling. Because if you claim, you know, to pick a not-so-hypothetical example, oh, the election was stolen from me, even though there's zero evidence for that, and on the contrary, you know, tons of evidence against that proposition. If you then continue to make that claim, that is when when things become problematic. Well, I think also the issue becomes the media, right? The layer between fact and fiction and how the media construct, constructs or reconstructs the truth because it's serving its purpose, which is to sell advertising. Well, yes, and we had some recent very, uh, uh, you know, interesting examples of 
various different ways in which the media do that. I'm now thinking of Fox News that, you know, a few months ago paid out, what, a three-quarter, three-quarter billion dollars in, to settle a lawsuit against it by a voting machine manufacturer. And mm-hmm. the reason they mm-hmm. did it is because during discovery, it became apparent that they internally knew full well that there was nothing to this uh, nonsense about the election being stolen. But to make money, they pretended that there was evidence and they were building up and supporting this conspiracy theory, ultimately led to a violent insurrection on on January 6th. So this is not trivial stuff. This is really important. And in this particular instance, we have one media organization that just simply lied about it to make money. And, you know, that's pretty concerning. But it doesn't even have to be that extreme. There are other ways in which the media can create a problem. And that is if they insist on balance and symmetry when there is none. Now, Journalism 101 teaches people, you got to present both sides of the story and the readers make up their mind. Great. That's fine if there are two competing opinions that are equally supported by evidence, which can happen very easily. But that breaks down and becomes very damaging when there's a clear asymmetry where one side has all the evidence and the other side is, for political reasons, trying to deny that. I'm now thinking, for example, of climate change, where the yeah. scientific yeah. position is is utterly clear and unambiguous and undisputed, and that is that there is climate change and it's driven by human carbon emissions, and the other side is just paid propaganda for the most part, but nothing else. And then we get to vaccinations where we have a similar conflict between the science on the one hand and people who are opposed to vaccinations and invent uh, falsehoods, quite frankly, on the other. And that's where the media have great difficulty identifying those situations and differentiating them from others where the balance is actually appropriate. I want to ask what we as citizens can do. I mean, when we're talking about cognitive immunity, right? We're talking about, you know, um, or the mental immunity project, right? Uh, critical thinking and trying right. to think smarter, better, and more reasonably. Yes. How do we know? How do we trust the sources that are out there? Give us some tips for sussing this out. Absolutely. Great, great question. And the million dollar question that yeah. we all have to be concerned with in how we consume news media. First of all, you can look at the argumentation of the people involved in a debate. So, for example, we've known for 2,000 years, you know, going back to some old Greek dudes, that if you're incoherent in your argument, that then you're, you're wrong, okay? You cannot be incoherent and be right. It's as simple as that. It's, it's a necessary requirement to be truthful is that you have a coherent story that doesn't contradict itself. Well, if you know that, then you can analyze what people say. And if they contradict themselves, then you might say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Let me give you one example from climate denial. This is just one of hundreds of examples of, of incoherent speech. There is one myth that is going around out there among climate deniers that, you know, you can't measure global temperature because thermometers are not reliable enough. Okay. (laughs) Well, 
I actually had yeah. not heard that one. That's a good good new one. Oh no, oh no, oh it's out there, believe me. You know, they're claiming that the thermometers are just, you know, hopeless and they're being measured at the wrong time of day or whatever. Some some complete clownish sort of argument. But that's only half the story because the same people will then tell you Oh, you shouldn't worry about climate change because it's been cooling for the last five years. Excuse me? How do you know it's been cooling if you can't measure temperature, right? It's completely incoherent. Yes. You, you can either, either say the thermometers don't work or you can rely on the thermometers to tell you it's cooling. If you say both, then you got a serious problem. And so, so that sort of detecting that incoherence is is a very good way of, of finding out whether somebody is likely to be reliable. And we've actually run experiments where we teach people in brief videos to detect incoherence. And we can do that successfully. And once they've learned to pick out incoherence, they can actually, people can apply that skill and detect incoherence, which is the first step towards being resilient against being misinformed. I like what you said about um, coherence. I also like what you said about the the willingness to debate. And mm. in the U.S., you have political candidates who are saying, Trump, for example, I don't need to debate because the people <laughs> already know who I am. Well, this was a recent, <laughs> a, a recent comment. Oh, I mean, he's right. I think right. I think Americans do know uh, uh, who he is. That doesn't mean they know him in the same way. I think uh, you know he obviously is a very polarizing figure. Yes, but yeah, I mean that is a convenient way to sidestep accountability, of course. And the data, right? For those of us who are fact-driven and data-driven people who like to see proof of concept before making a decision, a figure like that who is not willing to come to the table with the, the data and the facts, mm. I'm skeptical of, regardless oh, of what party they are a part of. It doesn't absolutely. matter. And, and so you should be, of course. But unfortunately, it's a little more complicated because pseudoscientists pretend that they have data and that they have findings. Let's again go to climate denial. You know, the guy tells you that, that it's been cooling for five years. You know, he will insist on on that being true and data and you know he'll he'll say oh you see the the climate scientists are all ideologues because they're not agreeing with me that it's been cooling for five years so so then it becomes complicated how do you tell the difference there and the answer is uh, uh, again something that that we can teach people and that is that a lot of pseudoscience relies on cherry picking. That is, they don't look at all the data. They only pick the data that support what they want to say. So in the case of the guy telling you the world is cooling, well, actually, if you have a look at the data they show you, very often it's just data from the United States. Well, that's nice, except that's not global. So it tells you nothing about global warming. Or they only talk about three years, a ridiculously short time span, because climate change, you know, climate is anything beyond 15 to 30 years anything less than that is weather so Interesting. you know you need to know these things and then you can analyze how well people are actually supporting their argument with data 
we're nearly out of time and I would love to close out this episode before we invite our listeners to come on over and hear our continued conversation and Substack. If you were to give one or two take-home exercises for people to put into practice in the coming years, what would they be? Right. Well, the first thing is to look at people's argumentation and see if it makes sense. To spend the time to do that, uh, number one. Number two, if you're confronted with a website and you don't know whether you should trust it because you've never seen it before, don't waste your time staring at that website because whatever it tells you is going to be something they want to sell you. Don't look at the website. Go to Google and type in a search query asking, what is this website? And see what else pops up. This is a process known as lateral reading because you're going sideways, not deep into the website. And you can find out within seconds whether the website you're looking at is a front for whatever, the fossil fuel industry or or some political organizations or whatever. And then you have, then you can make a judgment about whether or not you want to trust it. This is sound advice to, to go in laterally. I, one that I use because some of these websites, they look credible. Oh, you yeah. know, they have all the bells and whistles of, oh, this is an, a, an official organization and it really is a front for something else something or some, else. Exactly. some ideology that is, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and there's a lot of that. Professor Lewandowski, thanks for joining me today. I want to give our listeners uh, your website. Again, I'm going to spell it out because it's a bit different. It is cogsciwa.com to connect with Professor Stephen Lewandowski. Please do so at cogsciwa.com. You can find him on Twitter at stwarg, and that's S-T-W-O-R-G. Or actually, it's S-T-W-O-R-G. Now I get it. I was a little slow. Exactly. <laughs> and my website is actually CogSci for Cognitive Science. And then WA, which is Western Australia, where I used to live. So even the website makes a little sense. Sorry for me being slow. I'm a little... Uh, hey, and that's proof of the concept here, right? Like, we think we're doing the right thing, and we might not be doing the right thing. So I Well, it's perfectly fine to spell it. I'm happy either way. So just Cog pointing it out Cogside yeah, There you go. <laughs> now you've got it. All right. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest, Dr. Stephen Lewandowski, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Want to take a deeper dive into sound ideas for better well-being? Check out our new bonus edition content, More Mental Fitness by Harvesting Happiness, available exclusively on Medium and Substack. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime, anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with and follow us on most social media channels. To learn more about lifestyle management and mental fitness consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Harvesting Happiness and more mental fitness are produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Guess, in collaboration with TogiNet Radio 
kbuuradiomalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.